Morning Coastal. Great to be here with you today. Man, give it up for our worship team. We have some talented, some talented people around here, I tell you. All right, so this morning we are going to be continuing in our series called The Call of Moses. So every spring we've taken a chunk of the book of Exodus and worked through the book of Exodus. Um, we're almost finished. We're, you know, what is this, like year three, year four? So been a while now. Um, but last week we saw in Exodus chapter 33 that despite their sin, God's people still dwelt in his presence because of the favor that God showed their mediator. And as Pastor Nate taught us last week, this points us to the greater mediator that we have in Jesus Christ. In Exodus 33, Moses asked to see the glory of God, which God agreed to show him in a partial way by proclaiming his name and showing Moses his character. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 34. We are going to be in chapter 34 today. Starting in verse 1, says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Remember, Moses came down the mountain, finds the people worshiping the golden calf, and he gets angry and throws the Ten Commandments on the ground and busts the tablets. So now they got to make new ones. Verse 2, be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of of the Lord. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, I thank you for your word today. God, I pray that you would show us your glory through your word. God, that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth, that you would protect us from error. God, and that uh, we would please you as we worship you through studying your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to see in our text today is the revelation of God's character. Verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God proclaims, his character by proclaiming two things, his attributes and his actions. Attributes, he says, he's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen. Thank God for that. How many of you need God to be gracious and merciful towards you? And his actions, he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin, then he says, he does not clear the guilty. And when we get to that phrase, we say, hold up, wait a minute. It, we have a seeming contradiction here because how can God forgive iniquity and transgression and sin and, and then turn around and say, but I will no, by no means clear the guilty? How is this possible? Now, we might be tempted to say, well, that's just how God was in the Old Testament. You know, he's really harsh and cutthroat. 
But then you get to the New Testament and Jesus comes and God becomes a big old softy all of a sudden. Eh, that's wrong. We shouldn't look at the Bible that way. We shouldn't look at God that way. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. His character doesn't change. And we can see the way this was understood clearly from the Old Testament itself. Did you know that our text today, Exodus 34, verse uh, 6 and 7, it's the most often quoted passage in the whole Old Testament. The other Old Testament writers quote this passage more often than any other. We see in Joel chapter 2, Starting in verse 12, he said, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. We see in Jonah chapter 3, you remember the story of Jonah. God tells him to go to Nineveh to preach that Nineveh would repent. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, we find out later, because he doesn't want them to repent. He hates them. And so he runs and he goes to Tarshish and gets swallowed by a big fish and it's a whole crazy story. But we see it here in chapter three, verse 10, after Nineveh repents, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord God and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah is like, if I go and preach and they repent, my God is merciful, he's gracious, he has steadfast love, he's not gonna destroy them. So you see, even in the Old Testament, they had this understanding that God showed mercy to those who were repentant. One commentator paraphrased Exodus 34, seven this way. He said, I forgive the iniquity and transgression and sin of those who come to me in faith and repentance, but toward those who refuse to repent and continue stubbornly in their sin, I will be perfectly just and will by no means clear them of guilt. I think that's a, a right way to understand these verses here, and I think that's the way the Old Testament writers understood them. Now, another peculiar phrase in verse seven is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, some of you may have heard the concept before of a generational curse. You may have heard somebody say, oh, well, I've struggled with this because I've got a generational curse, or you know, my family has this generational curse, whatever. Um, and they, that typically comes from these verses. And so I want to ask the question, is that a biblical concept? Is, is that what these verses teach? We see in Ezekiel chapter 18, starting in verse 19, he said, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? And when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. That gives us a window into how the prophets understood how God judges people generationally. And now there's a parallel verse. The first time God gave the law, when Moses first went up the, mo the mountain in Exodus chapter 20 is a parallel passage to Exodus 34, seven. And starting in verse four, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we see in the parallel passage, there's more detail, more explanation that informs our understanding of Exodus 34, 7. Now the statement in Exodus 20 came immediately after God gave the second commandment that they should not make a graven image of God. And the statement in 34, 7 comes immediately after what? After Israel has broken this commandment. So God's reiterating the importance of this commandment from the golden calf incident we read about in chapter 32. And so rather than teaching about uh, a supposed generational curse, I think this statement is warning us and warning Israel at the time of the consequences of sin that often have ripple effects into the generations that follow. So it's not that someone's an addict because his father was an addict and his father before him was an addict. It's not that someone is a liar because his father was a liar and his father before him was a liar. It's not that someone's an adulterer because his father was an adulterer and his father before him was an adulterer. No, you're not punished for the sins of your father. We are guilty because of our own sin and we make a choice and a decision about whether or not we follow in the patterns and sinful lifestyles of the generations that came before us. So while it's true that children are not punished for the sin of their parents, it's also true we have to recognize that sin has consequences and they are often far-reaching. So using our previous examples, if you abuse drugs and alcohol, you might be conditioning your children to do the same. If you're a liar, you might be teaching your children to lie. If you use pornography, you're inviting sexual sin into your home. If you're an adulterer, you are breaking a marriage covenant that not only affects you, but affects your whole family, your friends, your local church. The ripple effect is huge and it can have generational effects. Now, if I describe you in any of those things, remember what 1 Corinthians 6 says. He says, but such were some of you, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's in the past. You've been covered by the grace of Christ. So thank God for that. Not saying that to condemn anyone, but to warn us of the seriousness of sin and the lasting effect that sin can have. So our focus and our aim should be to model repentance and righteousness for our children and our children's children. So what God reveals to Moses about his character is that he's merciful, he's gracious, he's loving, he's faithful, and he's just. It's the God we serve. How does Moses respond to this? Verse eight, it says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Verse eight tells us Moses responds to the revelation of God's character with worship. And church, this should be our response as well. When we come face to face with the God of the universe, we should uh, just be stirred in our hearts to worship and not just worship God for merely for what he's done, but to worship him for who he is to worship him for his character. So after worshiping God, Moses begins to operate in this role as mediator between God and the people. Verse nine, he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your 
inheritance. And as Pastor Nate showed us last week in in chapter 33, God saw it fit to dwell among the people. Why? On the basis of their mediator. Moses found favor with the Lord, and so God renewed the covenant with Israel and remained with the people. That's the second thing we see in our text today is the renewal of God's covenant. Verses 10 through 28, they show us God renewing his covenant with Israel. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on this section because this is reiterating a covenant that we've already covered previously in this series. So we're going to move quickly through this. Verse 10, he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you whom you are, sorry, I screwed this up in the first service too. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all the ites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited to eat of his sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. It's just strong language here, right? Strong language because it's serious. And the renewal of the covenant that Israel had broken was a demonstration of God's character. So God proclaims to Moses, this is who I am. I am merciful. I am gracious. I am forgiving. And then he demonstrates it by re-entering into covenant with them, although they had already broken it. He tells Moses he's going to drive these people out of the land so that they may enter into it. And he warns him not to enter into covenant with these people. The first thing they're supposed to do when they get there is break down the altars, break down the shrines, all the pagan worship. It's got to go. It's got to be just taken out of this land because God's warning Moses, if you don't do that, you're going to end up sharing in these uh, eating of the sacrifices to these false gods. He, He warns them not to intermarry with these people. And let me be clear, that has nothing to do with ethnicity. That has everything to do with worship everything to do with religion. He's warning the people not to be led astray into idolatry. And church, there's a clear application. For those of you that are dating, you have no business dating somebody that's an unbeliever. If you're looking for a potential spouse, you have no business wanting to marry somebody that's an unbeliever. Missionary dating rarely works, by the way. You're baking into your marriage covenant disunity in your home if you can't share the covenant that you share with God with your spouse you're baking in disunity into your family now some of you are here and you're married to an unbeliever already and the Bible has lots to say about that and we don't have a lot of time to cover that but be faithful love them support them if if your wife submit to your husband even if he's an unbeliever If you're a husband, love your wife, show her grace. And God can work through their hearts. God can bring them into covenant relationship with him. So 
What God is communicating to Israel is that his covenant people are to be set apart. And in the same way, we as citizens of the kingdom of God and members of the new covenant must be set apart. We must not be given over to the systems and ways of this world that are contrary to God's word. We must not follow after the idols of this world. We must not participate in the sin that's promoted and celebrated in this world. And guess what? That's not gonna win you any popularity points with the world. That's not gonna win you any favor with the world. And if you value favor with the world more than the favor of the Lord, this is gonna be very difficult for you. And it's gonna reveal an idol in your heart that you love the praises of men more than favor with God. So these commands are rooted in the first of the 10 commandments, which is you shall have no other gods before me. It says God is a jealous God. What that means is he will not share his glory and his worship with anyone else because it's due him alone. Now, God is not jealous of anyone in a sinful way like we as humans are, but he is jealous for what is already his. He's jealous for what already belongs to him. So it's not only that he will not share his glory, he won't share you. God is jealous and he's not willing to share the people that belong to him. So verses 17 through 26, God is resummarizing the terms of the covenant with Israel. For the sake of time, we're going to skip down to verse 27. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, how did Moses survive 40 days without water? I can't even make it through a 35-minute sermon without drinking water. I don't think this is intending to say that that's medically possible. I think there's something supernatural going on here, right? The point is, God is sustaining Moses in his presence in such a way that he doesn't even need physical sustenance. So after the Ten Commandments were rewritten on the new stone tablets, and after spending 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord, Moses came down from the mountain to return to the people of Israel and proclaim what God had commanded. Third thing we're going to see in our text today is the transforming power of God's glory. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. So after Moses spent time in the presence of the Lord, there was a physical effect. There was a physical evidence 
emanating from him that he'd been with the Lord. Now, this is not a natural phenomenon like we might say a, a pregnant woman, like, oh, you're glowing. Not, no, not like that. This, was, this caused the people to fear. And I, I mean, I don't know anybody that fears a pregnant woman unless she's hangry. This was a supernatural phenomenon. His face is, it doesn't say, but glowing, emanating some kind of light. Like maybe when you're a kid, you used to build those little dinosaur skeletons and you charge them up in the light and then put them in the dark and they glow in the dark. Or you had the stars on your ceiling where you leave the lights on during the day and then at night they glow. Like, I don't know, maybe Moses is getting charged up with glory and then glow. we don't know. But something crazy is going on here and, and Israel's freaking out. Like, you get a load of mo, like, dude's glowing like what's going on and it says Moses would share the word of the Lord and then he would put a veil over his face because of the fear that it caused and perhaps there was anxiety there as well you know Moses is like oh everybody's looking at me everyone's freaked out like when you get a bad haircut and you feel like the whole world is looking at it you cover it up with a hat or something like it's maybe there's something going on with Moses there as well now this part of the story is kind of strange, right? This strange part of the story is actually used as an illustration in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to spend the rest of our time there. In 2 Corinthians, Paul distinguishes his own ministry from some false apostles who had gotten the attention of the Corinthians. And in the beginning of chapter 3, he's asking rhetorical questions. He's, he's sarcastically asking the Corinthians if he and his ministry partners need letters of recommendation. Starting in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that we are, that you are, a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So Paul's saying, you yourselves, Corinthians, are our letter of recommendation. Why? Because of the transformation that's taken place in their lives and in their hearts, saying you're living evidence of the power of our new covenant ministry. He says the law is no longer written on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of God's people. And this was the promise of the new covenant. Back in Jeremiah 31, he said, I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is what the Old Testament's been pointing toward, that God would write his law on our hearts. And so the glory of the Lord is no longer limited to a physical manifestation like a shiny face, but it's now a spiritual manifestation in the hearts of God's people. And this is the main point of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to contrast the new covenant from the old. Paul's saying that the new covenant is not by the letter of the law which kills, but it's by the spirit which gives life. And he points back 
to this story in Exodus 34 in order to illustrate that point. Verse 7. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So Paul's contrasting the new covenant ministry with, uh, of Christ with the old covenant ministry of Moses. And in the old covenant, it came with such glory that they couldn't even look at Moses' face after he'd spent time with the Lord. And he's saying that if we have a ministry of the Spirit working inside of our hearts, how much more glory should we have from that? We see that the old covenant was temporary, but the new covenant glory was permanent. The old covenant glory was veiled, but the new covenant glory was unveiled. The old covenant glory was limited, but the new covenant glory is unlimited. And in the old covenant, only the mediator could go into the Holy of Holies, could go into the presence of the Lord, right? Beginning with Moses, eventually the high priest of Israel would be the one designated to go into the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of the Lord on behalf of the people. But in the new covenant, we have unlimited, unveiled access to the power and glory of God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. This is because Christ, our mediator, shows us the glory of the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how does that impact the way we live? Verse 12 says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, some have understood that phrase, of what was being brought to an end, to say that Moses was somehow using the veil to deceive the Israelites, to not know that the glory had left him or something like that. I don't think that's Paul's point here. Because uh, Exodus 34 is clear. Moses would only put the veil on after he proclaimed to the people. So they could see the evidence of the glory when he was proclaiming what God had commanded. I, Paul's point here seems to be highlighting the temporary nature of the glory of the old covenant to contrast it with the permanent nature of the glory of the new covenant. And it says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now, some of you may know the story in Acts chapter 4. The apostles Peter and John, they heal a crippled man. And the religious leaders, they hear about it. They get very upset because, remember, they don't like Jesus or his followers. So they take Peter and John, they arrest them. And the text tells us that when Peter begins to speak, he speaks boldly. Why? Because he's full of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus actually prophesied this. He said, when you are brought before the authorities, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Well, that's happening in Acts chapter four. Peter speaks boldly through the Spirit. And when the religious leaders saw this boldness, it says that they recognized they were uneducated, ordinary men, but they could tell they had been with Jesus. So in the same way, church, because of this hope that we have, we ought to live bold, Spirit-empowered lives, and people around us should be able to tell that we've been with Jesus. Amen? 
We shouldn't be embarrassed or try to hide like Moses did. Moses put a veil over his face so that Israel wouldn't look upon its shining. Moses covered the effect of the glory of God rather than boldly displaying it. I'm going to call up the prayer team and the worship team. We're going to close in here in just a minute. Verse 14 it says, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So it's only through Christ that the veil is taken away. Paul's speaking here specifically of Israel, the Jews that rejected Christ, but the same is true of anyone who rejects Christ. A veil is over their heart, and it's only lifted through Christ. This is similar to what Jesus said to the Jews that rejected him in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 39. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus was saying, these people, they know the scriptures. They're searching the scriptures for eternal life. And yet they completely miss the point. They miss Jesus. He's saying, all of these writings, every, all the writings of Moses, it's all pointing to Jesus. And they've missed it. Jesus is the better mediator of a better covenant. Moses in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, they merely foreshadow Christ and his covenant. Those things point to Christ. And God help us if we search the scriptures and miss that. And it's all pointing to Jesus. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. If you want to know the glory of God, look at Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. We experience God's glory when we experience relationship and communion with Christ. Paul tells us those who reject Christ are living with a veil over their hearts. He said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? For those who believe in and follow Jesus Christ, the veil is removed. The veil is lifted and we are now free to live in the glory of his presence. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 3, verse 17, 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Nobody amens that? Come on. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Freedom. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Sorry. The, yeah, the old has passed away. The new has come. So yes, what are we free from? We're free from sin. We're free from shame. Free from guilt. Free from death. Yes, all of that's true. But even more than that, we are free to behold the glory of our God. We are free to go into his presence boldly, as Hebrews 4, 6 says. Free to live each and every day in the presence of of the Lord through his spirit. And the really cool thing is it says when we live this way, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. Christ transforms us more and more into his image when we spend time in his presence. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And that's the main point of our text today that the glory that Moses experienced points us to the greater glory of Jesus Christ that transforms us into his image through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, for your character, for all that you've done. God, I pray that you would help us to be people marked by repentance, marked by righteousness, that we wouldn't be a stiff-necked people stubbornly pursuing sin and, and stubbornly pursuing worshiping anything other than you, God, but that we would be a people that pursue your glory through Christ, through the power of the Spirit. God, I pray that as we as we spend time in your presence, God, daily, we wouldn't take that for granted. We wouldn't be casual. God, but we would take it seriously. We would spend time in your presence, God, and allow your spirit to make us more into the image of Christ. God, we thank you for the transforming power of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.